When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. The Hartford understands protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-size companies like yours to help manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com. Live from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. The parties are divided in terms of the effect that the stimulus is going to have. This inflation debate has really been heating up the effect of what the Biden administration is spending on political capital. Bloomberg Sound On. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. A group of centrists are the key senators to watch. Joe Biden, his number one focus in addition to the COVID health crisis is jobs. I don't think we have red roads and blue roads, and that's the way we're looking at this. Bloomberg Sound On. With Devin Cirilli on Bloomberg Radio. A hundred million vaccines, more than they thought they were going to get. The Biden administration marks a key milestone in the fight to combat COVID-19. Plus, we check in with Congresswoman Haley Stevens, a Democrat from Michigan's 11th Congressional District, and Congressman Ken Buck, a Republican from Colorado, an all-star lineup. Just a massive headline on that Amazon NFL deal. $105 billion worth TV deal. Amazon taking Thursday night football. Cord cutters, folks. They are a real thing. My name is Kevin Cerilli. I'm the chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. I'm accompanied by the all-star policy panel, including Bloomberg Politics contributor Rick Davis and Bloomberg Politics editor Wendy Benjaminson. We begin tonight with President Joe Biden announcing that from the White House today, the United States tomorrow will clinch the goal of administering 100 million COVID vaccine shots in the first 100 days of his presidency reaching the mark six weeks ahead of time. But he added that there is still a long way to go. Take a listen to the sound on the shots. I'm proud to announce that tomorrow, 58 days into our administration, we will have met my goal of ministering 100 million shots to our fellow Americans. Keep the faith. Keep wearing the mask. Keep washing your hands. And keep socially distanced. We're going to beat this. We're way ahead of schedule, but we got a long way to go. Wendy Benjaminson, I mean, this was largely anticipated, but uh, clearly a victory lap of sorts for the administration to be taking. Absolutely a victory lap, and it comes on the heels of passing the $1.9 trillion uh, COVID relief bill, which was a big deal for for Joe Biden to have a big legislative win like that at the beginning. So, yeah, he's, he's taken the show on the road to do victory laps all over the country. I mean, he's, he's saying 100 million shots. He said in the first 100 days, he may, as he points out, he did it in the 58 days and hopes to get it more of them out. Now, the, the to be sure, of course, is that that doesn't mean everybody's getting 
you know, vaccinated that quickly. There's he's making people eligible and it's helping, but some of the states are still have to get people vaccinated, so it's going to be a little while. Well, to go global, just for a second, diving into the Bloomberg terminal, European countries, including Germany and France, will restart using AstraZeneca's COVID nineteen vaccine after the European Union's drug regulator endorsed it as safe and said it isn't linked to an increase in the risk of blood clots. Again, uh, AstraZeneca going to be restarted that vaccination in Germany as well as France. Rick Davis, I mentioned that because I think it's important to separate the politics from the vaccination implementation. And let's be frank here, the Biden administration inherited a timetable uh, because of uh, the construction of what happened uh, from the public and the private partnership all throughout the last 15 months, 12 months, technically. That's right. I mean, look, this is a victory for the American people. Uh, they're the ones who are benefiting from these vaccines. Uh, both administrations deserve some credit in the eyes of the public because we didn't stub our toe on an AstraZeneca rollout, right? Our, mm-hmm. our vaccines have been proven effective. Uh, we didn't have to take a step back. Uh, the, the infrastructure around the original distribution uh, worked within weeks of uh, Joe Biden coming into office, and and they built upon that, and now have opened up, as Wendy said, a much bigger funnel to push vaccines into arms. And so, look, I mean, ideally, what the Biden administration can do, and I think they're trying to do this, is depoliticize the vaccine process, uh, so that people don't think if I'm a Republican, I shouldn't get a vaccine. Uh, and I think that the more they can prove that they can distribute effectively, reinstill confidence in government and depoliticize it, we can we can win the war on on covid. But uh, uh, today is a good day for the administration. And as when he said, it's not the first one they've had. that's a good day. So. Uh, We hope that uh, that continues. Coming up on the program, we're going to check in with Congresswoman Haley Stevens, a Democrat from Michigan's 11th Congressional District. She also is a member of the House Committee on Education and Labor. Wendy, you alluded to the $1.9 trillion in stimulus. Uh, Today we're talking about the 100 million vaccines. The most pressing issue for many American families, as well as families around the world, happens to be whether or not their kids can go back to school. I'm definitely going to be asking Congresswoman Stevens about this, given her role uh, on the House Committee on Education. But uh, this has been a sticking point for President Biden, especially as he's got to navigate through uh, an, uh, an economy that's reopening, governors who are bullish on reopening on the Republican side, and teachers unions who, quite frankly, have been saying they don't want their teachers going back to schools. That's right. And I think um, I might predict that the teachers unions are actually going to be the ones um, uh, sort of on the left without a chair when the music stops, if, if, if they keep <laughs> up this position much longer, because it's becoming quite bipartisan. I, you know, I hear you I live in, loud I and live, clear. I live in Northern Virginia. There are a lot of Democrats in my neighborhood and They want their kids back in school, and they don't care about the teachers' union's preferences on this. Um, You know, and so I think this is becoming a a really bipartisan issue. And and really, the more kids stay out of school, it's also not just the teachers' union. Every study shows, and, you know, they're so obvious, it's better for the kids to be in school than sitting, especially the The kids want to be in school. The kids want to be playing preseason right now, and they want to be going back to school. Look, I come from a family of teachers. I got a sister who's a teacher. I got a mother who's a substitute teacher following being a teacher, Rick Davis. Uh, They want to be back in the classroom. I mean, so, you know, it's, it's really become, I think, as Wendy just so keenly pointed out, 
<laughs> when I'm in the halls of Congress, when I'm talking to staffers, they want to know. I'll never forget. I wrote it in my journal. I wrote in my journal about that one staffer who's a far left progressive who looked at me and said, so when is Mayor Bowser reopening the schools? Go ahead, Rick. Yeah, when they hit it, uh, this is uh, not a partisan issue. Uh, I think this is one of the good things that have come out of this. This COVID is a focus on getting these cool kids back in schools. And 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 I would say that that the Biden administration will take a hit if they're mm. not able to manage through this this issue How with so? the teachers union because they they are seen as. A uh, constituency to the Biden administration. Teachers unions uh, have always been sort of Democratic voters. And so when Republicans in Congress say the Biden administration isn't doing enough to put kids back to school, the reality is these are local school districts, mayors and governors who are making these decisions. But the people who are making it tough are the union members. And without the Biden administration publicly going out and pushing them back to school, the kids aren't going to get there fast enough. It's, it's, and it's, if I could just go ahead, add, I mean, and it's particularly awkward because Jill Biden is an educator. She's always been a real friend of the teachers unions. And now there's some nudging going on. Well, as I think what we've learned here is there's a difference between being friends with the teachers unions leadership and friends with being teachers, with folks who are actually teachers. There's a difference. There's a difference. Yeah. Like it or lump Absolutely. it. All right. Absolutely. Another headline. And then trust me, I know that firsthand, given my family. Uh Another headline that we're monitoring tonight, uh, of course, is Secretary of State Tony Blinken. Uh, and we are carefully, carefully uh, watching the feed as he uh, touches down in Anchorage, Alaska, where he will be meeting with counterparts from Beijing. And, of course, they are going to be talking, Rick Davis, about a host of different policy uh, uh, policy initiatives as it relates to China. The most pressing is that Beijing wants to hold a virtual talk on Earth Day April 22nd. But uh, the United States has been putting pressure on a host of different concerns ranging from uh, the South China Sea to uh, operate military operations in Taiwan and uh, a semiconductor shortage uh, in the Xinjiang province. Mind you, that's where the Uyghur minority abuses are taking place, Rick. Yeah, this is a uh, this is a really important meeting. Um, I think the biggest thing that can come out of this is whether or not uh, Joe Biden and Chairman Xi uh, actually summit later on this year. Uh, it is not a guarantee. Uh, unlike previous administrations, this administration seems to understand the di- diplomacy better and doesn't make any promises going in. Right. We'll see what happens in this meeting to decide whether you get the credibility of meeting with the president of the United States. That is exactly what old school diplomacy is all about. And you're right. We have a litany of arguments to make to the Chinese about their conduct, both domestically with their their holding back the chips uh, uh, that are critical to manufacturing uh, in the United States and elsewhere, but also their conduct and a raft of issues, as you said, human rights and the climate. The climate is one area where I think the Chinese believe they can find common cause with um, with uh, the Biden administration. And that may be the case, but there are going to be many roads to hoe before they get to that point. I mentioned this to, to Jonathan Farrow, my friend and colleague, uh, earlier today on Bloomberg Television, which is, uh, can you just explain to us, Rick, how the uh, environment issue as well as the Uyghur abuses issue are linked, given the metals that are developed in the Xinjiang province, which is where the Uyghur abuses are taking place? Yeah, this is, you know, the sort of classic supply chain problem that the mm-hmm. Chinese have. And uh, and what it is, is the suppressing a minority group uh, who have uh, pushed back against the Chinese Communist Party, 
uh, and uh, and 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 in that same region, uh, the manpower that makes the the raw materials and the supply chain uh, that exists for uh, chip manufacturing has been disrupted by this group. So it's not just they don't believe in their you know religious beliefs or something. These are these are people who they've had uh, yeah. disruptions with that they are going to clamp down on. You can't make a solar panel without polysilicon, and that's made in the Xinjiang province where the Uyghurs are being abused. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio. This is Bloomberg. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg Radio. In the break, I heard from my colleague Scarlett Fu, Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio Scarlett Fu, who spoke with Congressman Ted Lieu earlier today after the House Judiciary Committee's hearing on the anti-Asian attacks. And uh, we're going to be bringing for you those comments uh, when we get them uh, as lawmakers uh, continue to condemn uh, anti-Asian attacks that have been happening, unfortunately, horrifically, tragically, all around uh, the country. My name is Kevin Cirilli. I'm the chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. I'm accompanied by my uh, my friend, my colleague. Now, I guess we're colleagues, Rick Davis, Bloomberg Politics contributor Rick Davis. And we're joined on the telephone line uh, by Congresswoman Haley Stevens, a Democrat from Michigan's 11th Congressional District. She is the former chief of staff to the U.S. Auto Rescue Task Force, which is the federal initiative responsible for saving, correct word there, saving General Motors, Chrysler, and uh, the auto industry, especially in Michigan. She played a key role in setting up the Office of Recovery for the Automotive Communities and Workers and the White House Office of Manufacturing Policy back in the Obama administration. Congresswoman, it's great to have you on. We've been talking a lot about global supply chains, especially given Secretary Blinken's uh, trip to meet with Beijing counterparts in Alaska that is underway that we are carefully monitoring as well. And I guess I want to ask you first and foremost, how important is it to diversify the supply chain, not even just back to the United States to get more manufacturing jobs in the United States, but also away from China and around the world? Yeah, there's a couple of things as we talk about diversification that are important. One, allow me to apply the, the Michigan lens. And by the way, Kevin, great to be talking with you as usual. But just Thank allow you. me to apply the Michigan lens here quickly, which is, um, look, we two decades ago heavily reliant exclusively on automotive, an entire supply base, all concentrated in southeastern Michigan, and recognizing just as the 2008 downturn was hitting that we we needed to diversify and you saw some some steps to connect automotive suppliers to aerospace and defense manufacturers then when the downturn actually happened that went into warp speed and it was a program that was started by the chamber of commerce in detroit and then taken over by the state and now when i go and see my manufacturers yes 
still heavily selling into automotive, but they are diversified. What you're also, though, talking about, Kevin, that's very important here is our over-reliance on foreign production and foreign manufacturing. So with semiconductors, you know, you've got the stats on this. We've got semiconductors uh, companies here in, in the United States. I, in fact, my district yeah. office in Livonia is around the corner from Infineon. It's just that we have 17% of the production happening here, and we seeded it to Taiwan. Now, our supply chains are global. They're complex. I go and meet with my manufacturers. They're, by and large, they're either exporting or they've got foreign production taking place. What we want to do and what the Biden administration should take on is a feeling of what I call the missing middle, where we aren't manufacturing in America and how we should start to manufacture. The missing America. middle. This is important, folks. The <laughs> missing middle. And again, we, we, we this is what we do on this program. We really try to bring you the wonks, for lack of a better word, who work <laughs> in the policy. The missing middle. Describe to me, Congresswoman Haley Stevens, Democrat from Michigan's 11th congress- congressional district, the missing middle of the global supply chains. Get granular. Absolutely. Well, you have over 60% of manufacturers who saw disrupted supply chains. And you have, uh, we have a challenge here where, take for example, what we're looking at with the White House Buy American Initiative. We're looking at 3% of procurement that is likely skipping over where we could be buying directly from American manufacturers. What I've asked of the White House is, We've got to identify where we aren't making here and how we start to make here. Another example of this, we all remember the Recovery Act from 2009, 2010. We had high-speed rail initiatives put in there, all had Buy American provisions, and then we came up for air and realized we don't even have a passenger rail car manufacturer left in the United States. On Monday, I was visiting Soulbrain, an electrolytes manufacturer, doing all the chemical processing, going into the lithium-ion battery. I maybe even have talked to you about this company on the show before, Kevin. Yeah, no, you have. have. But but I just saw them again. So they've grown. They've grown. So they had 25 employees two years ago when I last saw them. They have 60 employees today, but they are still only one of two. And guess what? Where are all their chemicals coming from? Mm. China. And so we just allowed ourselves... To be dependent. And so what I'm asking and what I plan to do in my role on the science committee is do the supply chain mapping just for the battery, just yeah. for the battery, because we know we've got to meet the Buy American content requirements now for USMCA. But by golly, I got to understand and mm-hmm. the world needs, our world, the United the world Re- of the Representative United Stevens. America needs to understand. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, I, I think this is exactly the example that people are looking for as to how to you know wean themselves off of China and the manufacturing uh, uh, that they have for our for our missing middle. But uh, uh, everything's scale, right? And, and just today, even Elizabeth Warren, Senator, uh, uh, came out with her green manufacturing plan, and it talks about $1.5 trillion investment in American-made clean energy that is emission-free. Now, you know, the manufacturers in... In, in Michigan have picked up on emission free. You know, they they do quite a bit in this area. You were just talking about the, the battery uh, program. But like, what do we really need to be able to scale this up? I mean, it's not just like unbolting machines in Jensen and bringing them over to uh, Detroit. Yeah, I'm, I'm nodding here, and I'll tell you why. It's the competitive energy investment structure that has largely skipped over the Midwest. And yep. 
if you had talked to some of my colleagues in particular, you know, why don't we have a Tennessee Valley Authority? Why don't we have, uh, you know, a Western infrastructure type of bank focused on energy spend in the Great Lakes area and for our industrial sector? There were some great tax programs, 48C, because that's where it fell on the, the tax line for our manufacturers to do some of the energy renewable investments, and it went away. And we had it for two years and haven't seen it since, and it's now been a decade. And so I think we've got to look at regionalism in particular and competitiveness. Congressman Stevens, just to bring our audience up to speed now, headlines crossing the Bloomberg Terminal just within the last two minutes. Secretary of State Tony Blinken has begun those talks with Chinese counterparts the first talk since Biden took office in Alaska. Again, U.S. and China officials begin their first talk since President Biden has taken office. Those talks are occurring in Alaska. Secretary Blinken made brief remarks ahead of those talks and said that the United States is committed to leading with diplomacy. Other headlines crossing the Bloomberg terminal. Secretary Blinken says U.S. will discuss Xinjiang, Hong Kong concerns, and that Blinken says some China actions threaten rules-based order. He went on to say that the U.S. will discuss cyber attacks with China. Congresswoman Haley Stevens joins us. She's a Democrat from Michigan. Let's focus on one of those Bloomberg terminal headlines about the Xinjiang province and Hong Kong concerns and the the abuses, the human rights abuses, Congresswoman, that are occurring against the Uyghur Muslim minority uh, group in the Xinjiang province, which, oh yeah, is where half of the global supply of polysilicon comes, which is crucial to making solar panels. So is it possible to have a, a, a conversation about uh, uh, changing uh, the energy policy, the global energy policy, to make it more uh, environmental friendly and global environmental friendly without addressing the massive human rights abuses that are happening in the Xinjiang province against the Uyghurs? Yeah, we've got to be able to do both, and I want to applaud our Secretary of State uh, for his position and firmness uh, as he sits down for these lengthy uh, discussions of diplomacy. Uh, and certainly this is not something that we haven't dealt with before. Uh, and we recognize this with our rare earth minerals uh, and our over-reliance on foreign markets for our rare earth minerals and the threats that su- that poses to supply chain securitization. So what we've lived through with COVID-19 and the continued disruptions that we're seeing, and now what might be brought upon by reckoning with the horrible treatment of the Uyghur population in, in, in China, is going to also pose a consideration for us as the United States government about how fast we choose to invest and how we reposition ourselves in terms of this this type of over-reliance. I'd want to take a look at some more of that sourcing and that manufacturing capacity. I'd also say that we've got to look at the, the workforce spends. And we know that our relationship with China is tenuous. We also, and I'd be eager to hear what comes out of these conversations as it pertains to tariffs and other policies that were put into place. We just saw yesterday our new trade uh, ambassador, Catherine Tai, be confirmed by the Senate. And the first thing that she's going to pick up as trade ambassador for the United States is this tariff agenda and how we continue to position ourselves uh, in, in a, to a position of strength with regard to China. 
Well, Secretary of State Tony Blinken, to that point, earlier this morning, ahead of landing in Alaska and making those comments, uh, actually did address uh, reporters. I want to play for you the sound on that, uh, Rick Davis, as well as Congresswoman Stevens, because he spoke uh, in particular about Beijing's consistent failure, he called it, to uphold its commitments. Take a listen to the sound on this from Secretary of State Tony Blinken. We are clear-eyed about Beijing's consistent failure to uphold its commitments, and we spoke about how Beijing's aggressive and authoritarian behavior are challenging the stability, security, and prosperity of the Indo-Pacific region. Yesterday, Rick, you and I, fo- or uh, this show focused a lot on uh, President Biden's remarks to uh, George Stephanopoulos on ABC with regards to Russia, but now we're pivoting to China. Now the U.S. and China relationship is in clear focus for the rest of the week. Yeah, and this is going to really have ramifications in the business community. Uh, we've been talking all week about the run-up to this session and, and the impact that it may have. We were just talking to Representative Stevens about semiconductors and the accessibility of them to her automobile industry and others in her home state. And and I would, I'd be kind of curious, uh, uh, Representative Stevens, if I could just expand upon that a little bit, because a lot of the, the domestic manufacturers of semiconductors can ramp up their manufacturing and meet some of these needs, but they're, they're saying they're going to need some support from the federal government. Would you be supportive of emergency legislation or legislation that's encapsulated in some of the moving bills that would give things like grants and refundable tax credits to the, uh, the, the microprocessor industry in order to be able to meet some of this need? Listen, I've spent more time crawling around semiconductors than I could admit. (laughs) (laughs) I don't mean to laugh, but I know you and I know that's true. (laughs) She knows the chips in those phones and the cars and the the computers. Go ahead, Congresswoman. (laughs) And and with absolute respect and and admiration for the people who are doing it. And, you know, the one thing we're skipping over is the universities. And there's a Mm. lot of assets within our universities. And so what I've been pushing for is what we do best, you know, some government spend with a public-private partnership. And I think if you can bring the universities to the table, because they have these semiconductors on site, and maybe those can be ramped up for production. We've done this through other micro-consortia in the past. The Digital Manufacturing Engineering Manufacturing Consortium is also an example of that. They utilize supercomputer technology at our universities for smaller manufacturers. And so, listen, I'm ready to write the bill. We have the CHIPS Act. It went un- unfunded in the defense budget. We can. We know that there's going to be a desire to do, do funding right now. I've heard the White House say it. I'm ready to do it, but responsibly so we can bring industry, academia, yeah. and everyone together. Congresswoman, let me ask you one final question. You've been so generous with your time. You mentioned higher education. Let me ask you about schools, teachers' unions in particular. Uh, should should schools be reopened? I mean, should should students be able to go back to their, to their classes now that we've got 100 million vaccines and, and millions of more on the way? Yeah, we're there. Um, in Michigan, we've got 97% of our schools reopening. We did see uh, an outbreak in mid-Michigan, which I know is being addressed. We're obviously paying close attention to the variant. I've been working with a lot of our educators, our parents. Obviously, not a lot of people two months ago were happy. But as we prioritize, particularly in southeastern Michigan, our teachers with the vaccine, they're going back to school. They're happy. We just did this big rescue plan. It is time to reopen our school. Congresswoman Haley Stevens, Democrat from Michigan, thank you so much for your time. I always appreciate it.
Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. And just to reset here, my name is Kevin Cerulli. I'm the Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio, accompanied by Bloomberg Politics contributor Rick Davis. We are monitoring a developing story coming out of Alaska, where Secretary of State Tony Blinken is meeting with Beijing counterparts. These are the first U.S.-China talks in person since President Biden has taken office. There are a plethora of issues that Secretary Blinken is addressing, including national uh, security, as well as Taiwan, Hong Kong, human rights abuses. I mean, Rick Davis, the, link, the list goes on and on, not to mention the economics and whether or not where the United States stands as to whether it will continue, whether it will continue to continue onward for from the Trump years to the Biden years. Well, and I think it even, uh, Kevin, goes back to the Obama years, right? I mean, like Mm. one of the things that is uh, we're paying a price for today is the fact that Obama really never set a line in the sand with China, right? I mean, he had a, quote, constructive relationship with China, and and it only became uh, more combative, you know, when Donald Trump came in office, but it was so inconsistent, right? There was no talk about human rights during the Trump administration, just about trade. And so, so we've had a really rickety uh, foreign policy approach uh, and national security approach to China for, for the better part of a decade. And, and this is the moment where this administration, you know, with Secretary Blinken in front of the Chinese, can draw lines in the sand, say these are the areas we are not going to cross. Uh, but you're right. The litany just goes on and on. You start then talking about things like intellectual property and cyber attacks and, 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 and other things. And, and, and I think one of the most interesting pieces that will come out of this is the fact that we have problems with what they do internally in China, too. You've mentioned the Uyghur population in Xinjiang province. Well, they also in- intimidate and coerce companies to cooperate with their state, whether it's on, you know, uh, cyber or uh, or other things that uh, have drawn real scrutiny in the Western world about whether or not data is safe if it's given to a Chinese company. And we've seen a lot of that with things like just TikTok here in the United States. So this is going to be a myriad of issues that get gets discussed. And at the end of the day, we were talking about this. What comes out of this? A meeting with the presidents of China and the United States to hash out these issues? We'll see. They may not be able to do enough in the short period of time to be able to orchestrate that. You know, earlier you mentioned uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren's proposal on that well, I think it's $500 billion she wants uh, for, for some type of, uh, is it the Green New Deal? I mean, is it Green New Deal 2.0? I don't well, really understand. It's, it's more like $2 trillion for the green manufacturing plan, but it was okay. good of her to talk about manufacturing. Well, my colleague Tim Stenovic interviewed her earlier today on Bloomberg Quick Take. Uh, take a listen to what she had to say about it, because it, it applies to this conversation uh, for for global supply chains. And, and what Congresswoman Stevens was saying, who's much more centrist, as to whether or not that could actually help the heartland, as it's known in the domestic United States. Here she is. You name a Republican 
who lives in a state, who represents a state that doesn't need an upgrade in their infrastructure. Right. Name a Republican who isn't struggling back home with problems of of gasoline powered or diesel powered uh, buses and trains and mass transit highways that need repair. We can do this together. It's kind of one of the things that's sort of everybody's best view of what the Senate ought to be able to do. Uh, she introduced the bill with AOC, Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, in the House of Representatives. But, I, I mean, respectfully, uh, Rick Davis, uh, this is not a bipartisan approach. No, she's sort of staking out a uh, left-wing um, uh point in the sand where she says, you know, here's what if if you want to really go all out and uh, and 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 meld the two priorities, you know, uh, fighting climate change and building American jobs, here's what you do in one bill. And and as we said, I mean, it's a it's it's two trillion dollars. I mean, where the marketplace is right now for a two trillion dollar clean energy bill, which is in essence what this is. Uh, is going to be debated, but probably not hotly, right? I think this falls on deaf ears in both the House and the Senate. But what will come out of it is a debate now around, well, then what is the likely role that climate will play in any infrastructure bill? And in that regard, it's a smart thing to do because she's out there early, she's staked out a position, and she'll be able to say, yeah, but what are we doing to preserve you know, our, our, inf- our, our environment, our ecosystem, uh, what have we done to meet a zero carbon emissions by 2030, which is the goal mm-hmm. of this plan? Rick, very quickly, and we, only, we have less than a minute, so very quickly, are the Chinese is the Chinese Communist Party as committed to environmental protections as the United States and Europe are? Well, I always looked at the Chinese Communist Party, and I'm glad you mentioned that because I think we forget sometimes that they are a communist party. They they actually have to do something to clean up. <laughs> they they look at environment as not pe- people not choking when they breathe in Beijing, right? People not dying from effluent in the water, you know, that they can't purify. Uh, the inability to farm because the soil is contaminated. That's environmental protection in China. So important. I'm Kevin Cirilli with Rick Davis. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio, accompanied by Bloomberg Politics contributor Rick Davis, former campaign manager to John McCain's 2008 presidential campaign, also of Stone Court Capitol. There was a hearing today on Capitol Hill. Did you see this? Did you miss this? This is why I like doing this. It's we talk about the policies, you know, not the the water cooler political talk. Uh, the policies. There is a, a hearing today on big tech and whether or not the acting FTC chair is going to need bold action to rein in technology monopolies. Joining us is the ranking member of the House Antitrust Subcommittee, the top Republican on that uh, Antitrust Subcommittee. Welcome back to the program, Congressman Ken Buck, Republican from Colorado's 4th Congressional District. He's a former attorney and a prosecutor. All right, so what happened at the hearing today, Congressman? I thought it was great. It was a really uh, free flow of ideas. Uh, we're, we're talking about mergers and acquisitions and, and how to deal with some of the challenges with big tech and, and not hurt the rest of the economy. And I 
uh, I went in, uh, and I think most of us went in with a pretty open mind, and I, I think we came out with some uh, pretty pretty good ideas. So what needs to be done? Because I, you know this. I mean, Republicans and Democrats agree on very little, and even on the issue of big tech, in my coverage, there's been differences. But where is their agreement in terms of what needs to be done? Kevin, you and I just disagree, my friend. I, I think that we have... <laughs> Great overlap on, on this issue, and, and I'm really looking forward to uh, uh, some bipartisan legislation. Uh, we talked about uh, specifically the uh, the um, shifting the burden of proof on uh, uh, some of these big tech companies. There were 750 mergers over a, a 10 or 15 year period that, that went. Uh, uh, really un, unchecked by the two enforcement agencies. And uh, we all agreed that, that the enforcement agencies need more resources and they need to be more aggressive. Uh, some of those mergers, like uh, Facebook's merger with Instagram and, and WhatsApp, uh, really have uh, uh, given Facebook a, a competitive advantage that allows them to crush competition. And, and that um, I think that both sides uh, just find that unacceptable. How do you find the balance, and this is, I guess, a delicate question, but how do you find the balance of encouraging entrepreneurship, encouraging uh, there to be development and, and, and creativity in the private sector, while also acknowledging the very real risk that adversaries like China, for example, pose, I mean, in, in terms of the, their, the tech companies that they're uh, boosting up and the technology that they're boosting up uh, for their own gain? Yeah, I, I think that, uh, and, and this is a very broad generalization, and, and, but uh, we have always been better at innovation than, than China. And it has something to do with our, our education system. It has something to do with our capitalist system. It has something to do with our uh, really incentivizing risk in, in this country. Um, and, and so I think that when uh, we, we compete with a state-run set of businesses, the only thing that China does really well is, is steal our uh, intellectual property. And I, I think that as long as we don't have tech giants that are stifling innovation, we will be in, in a position to continue to out-innovate our competitors in the world marketplace. You know, it's, uh, this is Rick Davis and uh, Congressman, thanks for joining us. And I agree with you that uh, it is one of the highlights of Congress that the uh, bipartisan, non-political way that the Subcommittee on Antitrust has, has done these investigations into big tech. Uh, I, w- I remember the hearings that you all had on uh, July of 2020, where all the big guys were in the hot seat. And uh, I thought your uh, prosecutorial uh, uh, background came into big play there when you were interviewing these guys. The question I have is, where do you start? I mean, there are issues like censorship, misinformation, the acquisitions of competitors that you've talked about, uh, use of personal data. Uh, what would a piece of legislation look like? I understand you want to give guidance to regulators, but but where does Congress go with this? Well, the, the first place we start is giving regulators more uh, resources. The second place we start are a series of bills. It won't be one giant bill with 10 different issues covered. It'll be 10 separate bills. Uh, the first bill will be a bill that requires interoperability uh, and, and data portability with these uh, tech giants. Uh, these platforms uh, do a great job of going out and they, and, and for example, uh, on the uh, wearables issue, um, you know, I, I think it was Google that, that recently acquired Fitbit and, and Amazon has their own wearables uh, company. And so um, if they don't allow 
uh, a company like Garmin or some other company to have access to their platform, then they can uh, self-preference and, and restrict competition in, in the wearables marketplace. So we have to have uh, new laws that are specific to big tech that require uh, the interoperability of these uh, platforms. And, and then we have to have data portability. So if you want to move your data from Google to uh, Bing or some other search engine, you can do that. It's kind of like having a cell phone number that you can move from one cell company to, to another. So uh, those are two uh, issues that I think have broad, broad bipartisan uh, support. Then there's a business line separation where uh, we, we will look at, and, and I don't know where the uh, committee comes down uh, with this answer, but we will look at whether a platform should be allowed to compete with certain business lines. So when you go and buy grape jelly at a, a supermarket, you have have the supermarkets brand and you also have a number of other brands of, of grape jelly and and uh, that that's not a problem because we have another number of different supermarket chains the problem is that when one platform say an Amazon has its own product and you search for that product you see Amazon's product and then um, you know a hundred uh, spaces down you see the product for some competitor yeah that, that's yeah. not allowed Congressman Ken Bucks with us. He is the top Republican on the House Antitrust Subcommittee. He is a Republican from Colorado's 4th Congressional District. Did you see this? I, I usually don't like to talk about the media industry on air, but this is actually pressing. And Rick, to your point about spreading misinformation, did you see this? Australia. Australia has changed the game for big tech because actually what they're doing is they're now requiring for Facebook and Google to pay for news distribution. I, I think, you know, to your point, this is the one area potentially of bipartisanship, you tell me, Congressman, is could, could the United States follow suit and make Facebook, Google pay for news distribution? That, that identical bill has been offered uh, last week, in fact, before a hearing last week. I am a co-sponsor of that. Yep. Uh, there are four other Republicans who are co-sponsors, many Democrats who are co-sponsors, and uh, we will move forward with that. It needs to be refined a little bit for the specifics in, in the United States, but we will move forward. And so what would that mean for the average person scrolling through their phone, thumbing through their phone for the news that they get uh, on those platforms? Well, what it will mean, about a third of the small newspapers in, in rural America have gone under. And uh, what it will mean is that those newspapers will get the same uh, percent of advertising that the big newspapers get. And hopefully, and it's only a four-year exemption, it doesn't last forever, but it, it allows uh, news media as a group to negotiate with each of these big tech giants. That's fascinating and, and an important point uh, right there. Uh, Ken Buck, Congressman Ken Buck, thank you so much always for making time for us. He is a Republican from Colorado's 4th Congressional District. Uh, he is a former attorney and a prosecutor, a well-known one, and a ranking member, the ranking member of the House Antitrust Subcommittee. That's Congressman Ken Buck. Rick Davis, I mean, I was struck by this. I mean, the reports the other week uh, from Australia uh, really changing the game. And in many ways, Australia has been, I, I don't want to use this, the guinea pig, the guinea pig, so to speak, Rick Davis, for some of these issues. Yeah, it takes a country like that to be able to do some pioneering work. And, and look, for, suffice it to say that in the United States, where a lot of these big, big tech companies have employed millions of people and created trillions of dollars of wealth, the politics here is a lot harder 
to navigate. And kudos to uh, the congressman and his colleagues on this subcommittee, which is usually a pretty sleepy place in Congress. Uh, they have made uh, incredible strides. And, and I think, you know, it, it, it's suffice it to say that it, that it takes Congress people like Ken Buck, who probably have the same reputation today that Teddy Roosevelt had at the turn of the century for going after trusts. Uh, these were the behemoth companies at the yeah. turn of the century that seemed to own everything. And and Ken Buck is even using laws that were passed in those days to go after modern tech companies. And so uh, I think reform is good in this regard, and it sounds like his agenda is very aggressive. So we can expect to see bipartisan legislation coming out of the House of Representatives to help uh, peel back some of the uh, some of the 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 big tech companies and their practices business practices yeah it's it's really fascinating and again just a sign of the times and i mentioned this at the top of the show but rick davis the headline that jumped out at me today the nfl signing a 105 billion dollar tv deal with amazon for thursday night football i mean and that right there no kidding aside i mean that changes the game for lack of a better phrase that these cord cutters, you know, my, I'm one of them, and how I'm now going to be, I mean, selfishly, Rick, I'm going to be able to watch Thursday Night Football again and on my Amazon account, I think. So we'll leave it there. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent, Cord Cutter for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio with Rick Davis. Rick, do you have cable? I have both. Uh, uh, of course it does. Rick Davis, <laughs> Bloomberg Politics Contributor. Um, this is Bloomberg. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch strata coaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com.